Mary Curie, Elizabeth Blackwell, Jane Goodall, Alice Ball, and Mary Jackson all have one thing in common, being women who are scientists in a field dominated by men. According to a 2018 study, women only make up 28% of the workforce in science, technology, engineering, and math, and they make up even less of the workforce in computer science fields. Hi folks, you're listening to That's Child's Play, brought to you by Kide Science. And in today's episode, we are going to discuss women and girls in STEM, explaining quantum physics to children, and if you really actually exist. So without further ado, let's get into it. Kide Science talks a lot about equality in education because research shows that play-based science learning transcends socioeconomic status, gender, and sex. This guest, she popularizes complex science concepts on the little screen. There's no way that someone can jump off of 30 feet into a shallow pool of water and survive that. Light travels a lot faster through hot air than through cold air, which is a lot denser. A great example of resonance frequency is that trick we've all seen when people press their finger around the rim of a wine glass. And you know you've hit resonant frequency when the glass goes, whoa. Double slit experiment is a way to show that both light and matter can display characteristics of a wave. Our guest today is the first Mexican woman to get a PhD in physics from Stanford. She's a physicist, quantum scientist, keynote speaker, and TV host. Her name is Debra Berebiches. She now lives in Helsinki, Finland, working as a lead scientist in the microelectronics and quantum computing sector at the research center VTT. And Finland is building its first quantum computer there, and that's the team that I I work in. Deborah is well-established, and she's made great contributions in the STEM field. She's like a one in a million in society, and as a Latina woman, it almost didn't happen. I was actually discouraged from pursuing a career in science when I was very young in Mexico because I belonged to a small conservative community and I was told that as a girl I better pick something more feminine like communications or marketing and as I grew older I started to read books about mathematics and physics because I was insanely curious about the world but I always felt that it, it wouldn't be for me and I wouldn't be able to do it because all these men and counselors in school and my friends in school were saying that's ridiculous physics is for men and it's for geniuses too which I knew I wasn't it was a pretty scary time where I think I lost a lot of confidence about my math skills eventually despite the odds Debbie would go on to get a degree from Brandeis University in philosophy and physics it's rare for Latino women especially at that time but Debbie had an inspiration 
My father was a civil engineer. May he rest in peace. I recall from a very young age, he would take me on these trips and he was building these huge construction things like a hydraulic dam or bridges or highways. And there was always physics and engineering involved in it. And I was extremely curious. So even from age three, I would go on trips with him. Then I would ask my father questions about how they would build things. And he had all these theories about vectors and the support of the bridge and this and that. And I was just always very inspired by what are the laws of nature that make all of this possible. And I asked questions and questions. And then when I was about 14 years old, I met a friend who was really cool and really crazy in a sense that he was listening to David Bowie music when no one in Mexico knew what it was. And I always looked up to him and he loved physics. And so he really, it was like the cool thing for him. He made it cool. He made it part of, it wasn't just for nerds or outcasts like everybody else had made me think of it. He made it be really cool and modern and befitting to my curiosity and my lifestyle. So that's when I, I said, I want to study this field. So he made science cool and accessible for you. That tracks with your career currently, uh, especially with your presence in media and trying to make science accessible for the general public. Did you know that this was something that you wanted to do? I knew I wanted to do this media and acting and presenting on TV way before I knew I wanted to do physics. And so when I finished my BA in physics, I had an amazing mentor, Janet Matei, who had come from Turkey like 30 years before me with the same scholarship at Brandeis. And she had told me that with the privilege of having the scholarship and being able to study for free in a very good university in the US, I had a responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. And that I could be a role model for many other girls in other countries or even in the US who, like myself, felt attracted to science but felt like they couldn't do it. And so from then I said, wow, how powerful would it be if I could combine both areas that I'm passionate about, acting and presenting and explaining things in entertaining ways, and the very technical field of physics that I study and I'm so passionate about. And I started to look for opportunities of doing that. So first it was in kindergartens or primary schools. I would get invited to speak to Hispanic girls, and I was the first role model they had ever seen in science. And then it was in larger stages like TED and TEDx's at local cities. I, I started to see that being on camera, being out there presenting, creating initiatives and workshops for young women really made a big change because I started to hear the stories back from them and seeing that after meeting me and meeting others and networking with other female scientists changed the course of their life. They changed their choice for their career. So I've been looking for more and more opportunities to do that. Yeah, representation is really important for everyone. Little ones need to see more than one image of a scientist to believe that they can also be a scientist. So you study really complex things like quantum physics, and that is a topic that is not child's play. How do you convey these difficult topics to the average media consumer? It's a great question, Antonio. And they say Einstein said this, other people say Feynman, another famous physicist said it. But there's a quote saying, if you cannot explain what you're doing, 
to your grandmother or to a five-year-old in simple words, it means you don't understand it. And I really take it to heart. I, I love this quote. And so, for example, right now I'm working with engineering a machine that is based on the laws of quantum mechanics, which is an incredibly complex and weird area of mathematics and physics. And how do I start? What the process is? First, I, I like to say that because I wasn't the kind of kid who was like super talented from the beginning and things came easy to them, because I know what it's like to not understand something, then I'm pretty good at explaining it because I go to the very basics of it. For example, I've spent the past couple of weeks reading papers from 50 years ago when scientists dreamt about what a quantum computer would be like and what they thought it could do. And I go to the very almost cartoonish ways of explaining quantum mechanics and I see where the potential mistakes are because of course my responsibility is I have to be faithful to the science. It has to be correct. It has to be that I'm explaining things as they are, as we know them. So how do you do that with at the same time being entertaining and clear and concise? And it's a very hard process, I must say. It's, so I first imbue myself in all the old literature of the very basics of the topic. Then I challenge myself to forget about all the papers I've read and just write a script about what I want to say. How would I explain it to a five-year-old like my daughter? And then I have meetings with colleagues who are at the top of this field, cutting edge, and I explain playing it back to them as in the language of a five-year-old. And then they're like, oh, no, be careful because, you know, that is not entirely correct because it could be interpreted as this and that. And so they point out all the mistakes. So I go back to the board and I try again to add some complexity to it, but to be more faithful, but at the same time, keeping it rather entertaining. I work very hard with illustrators and graphic designers for when I do videos so that they can help me visualize things that are happening in the quantum world and even if we can't see them in reality because these are like tiny particles at least I can make a drawing or a visualization of it so that people can imagine better what's happening so that it's a whole process of back and forth and editing and just progressing until you get to the to the optimal approximation of what reality and all the data is telling us okay Debbie, I have a challenge. I watch a lot of Netflix documentaries and YouTube videos about quantum physics, and they're just so weird. Like, it goes against everything we've ever learned and thought about physics, in a way. My favorite concept that I've dived deep into is quantum entanglement, but I can't exactly wrap my head around it. Can you explain to me, in layman's terms, what is quantum entanglement? So entanglement means that two particles are related even when they can be a very large distance away from each other. In what way are they related? We don't exactly know. What does it mean in our regular world to be related, meaning to influence one another? We have to be pretty close. We I don't know, I, I can push you so then I have a force on you. I can electrify you if I've touched a Van der Graaff generator. And so I, I transfer forces to you 
through a mechanism that we know. Now in quantum physics, we don't know the mechanism, but what we do know is that we measure that, again, in, in quantum mechanics, you can't know both the momentum or the speed of a particle as well as its position. You don't know where something is until you measure it. And when you measure it, that means that you have no information, you've given up on any information about the speed that it was traveling, any direction it was traveling in, etc. If you know the speed and you go ahead and measure the speed, then you have absolutely no information about where that particle is in that particular moment when you measured it. So entanglement means that there are things like spin, which you can think of as a magnet being North Pole, South Pole, like up and down. It, we measure a particle that is related to another particle somewhere else, even if they haven't been in contact. And we know that their spin is going to be the same. And then we change the spin of one here and a mile away or very far away, the other particle also changes spin. So we know they are related because there is some transfer of information, but we don't know the exact mechanism why they are related. Okay, yeah, I love that explanation. And I'm just so excited for us to figure out something like quantum entanglement. Now, Debbie, on social media and in interviews, you often state that you're not a genius in math or physics and that people shouldn't necessarily have to feel like a genius to get into the field. But how do you graduate with a literal PhD in physics from literally Stanford and not claim to be a genius? I do think there's certainly an innate talent that makes people gravitate towards certain fields, but I'm a huge believer in that talent plays a small role, actually. And I'll tell you why. I was never encouraged to pursue math when I was young, so... I wasn't bad at math, but I also wasn't the wizard kid that won the math Olympiads and was like the best in math in the class. And everybody thought, oh my God, they're going to go and be a mathematician. I wasn't that. I did have a bit of innate talent, but I started my physics PhD at Stanford with the creme de la creme, the top students from all over the world who had been most of, we were 34 people starting in my cohort and only, I think, 14 or so graduated after six, seven years of doing the PhD. And many of the people who quit, we were only two women in those 34, by the way, but many of the people who quit were actually quite talented at it. Their parents were professors at Harvard, at Princeton in physics. They actually had won the math Olympics and, and whatnot, but they didn't stay put. They didn't have maybe the resiliency that you need, or they didn't have the courage that it takes to choose a topic and research it. They didn't have the discipline or, or whatever. In the end, the ones who make it and the ones who succeed are not the people for whom things come easily. It's the people who learn how to get up every time they have a challenge and after each obstacle. Those are the people who get to the end and succeed. As mentioned, Debbie was in her PhD physics program with one other woman. The only two women finished the program. So they started with 34 students, around 14 finished, and two of them were women. I couldn't help but theorize why the numbers worked out that way. It was almost like while the others felt like they deserved a seat at the table, the women in the program had to make a seat at the table. And Debbie has to deal with the intersectionality of being not only a woman, but a Latina and an immigrant in the United States. Being a woman in physics in 
these times definitely had its challenges. It has its advantages too. For example, once you overcome a lot of obstacles and you're invited to a conference to speak and present, you definitely stand out because it's a sea of men in the program. And so it, it has an advantage that, that you will probably receive a little bit more curiosity or attention. However, the disadvantages are plenty. So it's still a huge cost, especially in physics. It personally, I did encounter a lot of challenges so that intersectionality comes into the equation because as a Latin woman, I'm more expressive and I'm more social and I tend to be more, not louder, just wanting to socialize more. And that was a big no-no in a physics department where it's big difference being the, the nerds in school that have always stayed away from the parties and the socializing. They want to keep their boys club. And then this woman comes from Latin America, from Mexico, and she wants to do physics, but she also wants to go salsa dancing on the weekends. There was a lot of rejection. And whereas the more American woman that was uh, with us in the program, she was more accepted as part of the crowd because they perceived her probably as a better fit to that community. And so I think it, it was very hard. And then at work, it became very challenging. I remember when I was working in data science and we were uh, selling models to banks, risk models, I would go with a male colleague to meetings with all these PhDs. And he, my colleague was very smart, but he worked in sales. His job was only to talk about pricing of the models and various factors that included in how the bank or the hedge fund could use the model. But I was a researcher who created the model and very often they would ask him the technical questions. They thought I was the secretary, the assistant of this male colleague, even though I was the researcher behind it. And I have numerous examples. Yeah. And study after study shows that women who are assertive often get confused with being aggressive and that people have a much lower tolerance for women standing up for themselves than men. Now, Debbie came to Finland and has received a lot of media coverage. Finland is a small country and having a media presence like her here is a big deal. Some things happened that you can Google, but basically Debbie standing up for herself caught a lot of flack and led to a lot of negative comments. Debbie, how do you handle things like this? Thank you for asking that, Antonio. I'm developing a course to teach everything I've learned in a 25-year career to how to accelerate your career for women in STEM. And one of the main things is that it's there was a study at NYU called the likability study. Men don't have to choose to be either likable or competent. They can be both. They, you go to Wall Street and they can be really unlikable and not very nice people and they're hugely respected. And if it's a man, it's part of his job to be like super hard on people and make people cry and whatnot. That's just part of it. And that's because he's so competent. Nobody understands him. If you're a woman, you are forced to choose. If you want to be liked, which was my initial desire when I started working there, then I was nice to everyone. And what happened over time is that I was perceived as not competent. And I got passed over for a promotion when it was clear that I deserved it as much as the colleagues that were uh, working with me and all sorts of things because I ended up doing people's work and not getting credit for it. And then if you choose to be competent, there are, like you say, adjectives out there that describe female CEOs and, and women in STEM with really nasty words. Again, it's a thing that definitely affects people in their career. I've had female colleagues who say I can't be on Twitter because when I start to promote science, I, I get a 
attacked so much that I just, on a personal level, I can't take it. Has your experience in Finland been any different? Sadly, no. So as soon as I arrived in Finland, I started asking around. I met my first three months in Helsinki. I met the most spectacular women, like the highest concentration of really cool, kick-ass women that I had ever met in such a short amount of time. Every week, people were introducing me to two or three women who were CEOs in tech companies, who were developing amazing things and technologies and data science and new materials and packaging and you name it. And At the same time, when I spoke to a public speaking agent, he said to me, "No, there's still very few women in science and tech comparatively to the proportions in population." I said, "But why? If all these women here are amazing and free to study," he said, "It could be a historical thing, but we even have a term for it." There is a term for this, and this term is called the gender paradox, which states that even though there seem to be no barriers for women to get attracted and pursue careers in STEM, they still choose careers that were more appropriate for women in the old, in old school, in the 60s or 70s. And I'm very curious about why that is. The gender paradox is just so fascinating. One hypothesis has been that even though society is equal for the most part here, Scandinavian and Nordic countries are still consuming media where gender stereotypes are still very much portrayed. So, how can you, a little girl, see yourself as a scientist or aspire to be a scientist when that's just not what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis? I've been surprised. Like, for example, my son loves tractors and engines and machines, and there are a lot of women operating heavy machinery in Helsinki, and it's amazing. Like, we are watching this huge lever, like lifting something. I don't know, twenty floors up in the sky and there's a woman giving the directions and it's just beautiful to watch and I'm happy that both my son and my daughter are, are looking at those examples also police or people you know in parks and doing the cutting of trees and stuff a lot of it is women and this is fantastic to see Now, given the nature of this pod, we of course have to talk about Finnish pedagogy and how strongly tied it is to play-based learning. How has it been for your kids here? It's one of the best things in Finland. It's what makes me want to stay here for longer. Education is amazing. The freedom that kids have, the safety that you feel for them to engage in play. They actually, by law or by requirement in Finland, they play outdoors at least three hours a day, every day. In New York City, which you could say has much better weather than Finland, they would only go outdoors every couple of weeks or every three weeks. And if it's raining, forget it. If it's snowing, you may not even go to school. And here, no matter what the weather is, they told us this is the stuff you need to buy to prepare them for the weather. So they get prepared. They go every day. They explore the forest. They explore like survival techniques and she's like mommy don't worry that it's raining I can build us a shelter this is just so incredible and they are not asked to or obligated to write their names or study math at five years old not yet right now it's all focus on play have I ever met a 10 year old that doesn't know how to write their name no never they'll eventually learn to write words very well it's not a competition it's about learning how to enjoy learning and that they're doing so why is enjoying learning important and how can we keep that joy because we have taken learning to such a competitive 
environment that you see right now a lot of it in the US, in Asia, and even in Europe, a lot of stressed out kids who have to compete because getting into schools comes from being better and from being faster at mm. something. When I have friends who are standing out and, and kicking ass out there in physics who were really slow at calculating certain things, but eventually they persisted and they're still there, even though they may be slower at some things. So it's not about doing it faster and better and, and being the first in class to, to do things. I also came to physics a bit late because I was not allowed to before. And so the more you teach a child to enjoy nature, to, to play with learning, the more they're going to love it and like it and be attracted to it. My son, for example, loves reading books. He doesn't know how to read yet, but he thinks and he says, I'm reading a book. And, and we, we find it so fascinating when we try to encourage it. I really hope that for his entire life, he views books as a game, as a play, because that guarantees that he'll go back to them and he'll use books as a means for enjoying life. And what better guarantee that he'll continue to read than viewing books as a play? That's why it's so important. And science is all, all about trial and error. And if we're in a culture that penalizes people for failure, then we're never going to advance, right? And that's why the U.S. is so amazing in technology, because it's a culture fostering startups and failures is even celebrated in Silicon Valley. And we want that because when you play in the world, when you have new ideas and you risk proposing them and going ahead and discovering new things in a playful way, those are the people that change the world. Those are the people that are going to arrive at amazing new and innovative results. Also, when we talk about learning through play, we talk a lot about working with a child's curiosity, that when you embrace a child's ability to wonder and ask questions, you're truly allowing them to gain critical thinking skills. It's why I love what I do so much, because it seems so strongly attached to creating a better planet. That's why I always say the best gift you can give to anyone is curiosity, the gift of being curious about the world. When parents ask me for advice, how do I convey to my kids that science is cool? I say, just don't ever give them the answer to something. Don't get them used to a world where what they care about is getting the answer right. Like, mommy, why is the sky blue? And you just like Google it. Or why, why is two plus two four? Let's think about it. Okay, grab those apples. Okay. Okay, so you give me two and then your brother is going to give me another two. And so how many do you have? Do you see it? Now let's play. What if then you take one away? If they visualize it, if they see it, they're going to be much more open-minded and more certain about that result. And so I, I am a huge advocate for teaching kids to approach the world with a critical and open mind. Why do you think it's blue? Okay, and Debbie, every episode we ask this question. What is something that a child has asked or said that left you shocked or curious or questioning the meaning of life? My two-year-old son is constantly playing with me and saying this phrase, where is me? Instead of saying, where am I? He, it's the cutest thing. And he goes and hides behind the curtain and he says, where is me? Where is me? And so now my husband and I have started saying that all the time. And it's, or then my daughter started saying, what is me? And they were like, wow, like that's such a good question. Yes, what is me? Like that leaves me like, how do I answer that? Of course, he's saying it with the purpose of mommy, look for me 
behind the curtain but for us it, it really makes you ponder and my daughter just keeps asking all kinds of questions every day that leave me baffled <laughs> and just the idea that something as small as a language mistake can lead to an existential crisis. I can just imagine that if I heard that, the sort of rabbit hole I'd go down, like, wait a minute, what is me? It's also like about quantum mechanics. I want to be like, where is me is not so certain. You are here, but in quantum mechanics, you're also not here. And you're also here in this other place. So where is me? It's not a straightforward answer. Part of you is here, but some of your atoms are somewhere else. We're here and we're not here. Great note to end it on. Debbie, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you, Antonio. I really admire what you guys are doing at Kita Science. Well, that's it for this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, please like, follow, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in a free trial of Kide Science, just go to kidescience.com. We also have a Facebook community with many different resources, a blog, and just so many other good and free play-based learning activities. All of this can be found in the show notes. All right, well, thank you so much for listening to That's Child's Play. See you next time.